Section 34 of Jean Christophe, Volume 1. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Joshua Seeger in Chicago. Jean Christophe, Volume 1 by Romain Roland. Translated by Gilbert Canaan. Youth 3, Part 3. Nothing could have brought Christophe closer to Ada in his love than the way in which he was judged by others. The day after their first meeting it was known all over the town. Ada made no attempt to cover up the adventure, and rather plumed herself on her conquest. Christophe would have liked more discretion, but he felt that the curiosity of the people was upon him, and as he did not wish to seem to fly from it, he threw in his lot with Ada. The little town buzzed with tattle. Christophe's colleagues in the orchestra paid him sly compliments to which he did not reply, because he would not allow any meddling with his affairs. The respectable people of the town judged his conduct very severely. He lost his music lessons with certain families. With others, the mothers thought that they must now be present at the daughter's lessons, watching with suspicious eyes, as though Christophe were intending to carry off the precious darlings. The young ladies were supposed to know nothing. Naturally, they knew everything, and while they were cold towards Christophe for his lack of taste, they were longing to have further details. It was only among the small tradespeople and the shop people that Christophe was popular, but not for long. He was just as annoyed by their approval as by the condemnation of the rest, and being unable to do anything against that condemnation, he took steps not to keep their approval. There was no difficulty about that. He was furious with the general indiscretion. The most indignant of all with him were Eustus Euler and the Fogels. They took Christophe's misconduct as a personal outrage. They had not made any serious plans concerning him. They distrusted, especially Frau Vogel, these artistic temperaments. But as they were naturally discontented and always inclined to think themselves persecuted by fate, they persuaded themselves that they had counted on the marriage of Christophe and Rosa. As soon as they were quite certain that such a marriage would never come to pass, they saw in it the mark of the usual ill luck. Logically, if fate were responsible for their miscalculation, Christophe could not be. But the Fogel's logic was that which gave them the greatest opportunity for finding reasons for being sorry for themselves. So they decided that if Christophe had misconducted himself, it was not so much for his own pleasure as to give offense to them. They were scandalized. Very religious, moral, and oozing domestic virtue, they were of those to whom the sins of the flesh are the most shameful, the most serious, almost the only sins, because they are the only dreadful sins, it is obvious that respectable people are never likely to be tempted to steal or murder. And so Christophe seemed to them absolutely wicked, and they changed their demeanor towards him. They were icy towards him, and turned away as they passed him. Christophe, who was in no particular need of their conversation, shrugged his shoulders at all the fuss. He pretended not to notice Amalia's insolence, who, while she affected contemptuously to avoid him, did all that she could to make him fall in with her so that she might tell him all that was rankling in her. 
Christophe was only touched by Rosa's attitude. The girl condemned him more harshly even than her family. Not that this new love of Christophe's seemed to her to destroy her last chances of being loved by him. She knew that she had no chance left, although perhaps she went on hoping, she always hoped. But she had made an idol of Christophe, and that idol had crumbled away. It was the worst sorrow for her. Yes, a sorrow more cruel to the innocence and honesty of her heart than being disdained and forgotten by him. Brought up puritanically, with a narrow code of morality, in which she believed passionately, what she had heard about Christophe had not only brought her to despair, but had broken her heart. She had suffered already when he was in love with Sabine. She had begun then to lose some of her illusions about her hero. That Christophe could love so commonplace a creature seemed to her inexplicable and inglorious. But at least that love was pure, and Sabine was not unworthy of it. And in the end, death had passed over it and sanctified it. But that at once Christophe should love another woman, and such a woman, was base and odious. She took upon herself the defense of the dead woman against him. She could not forgive him for having forgotten her. Alas, he was thinking of her more than she, but she never thought that in a passionate heart there might be room for two sentiments at once. She thought it impossible to be faithful to the past without sacrifice of the present. Pure and cold, she had no idea of life or of Christophe. Everything in her eyes was pure, narrow, submissive to duty like herself. Modest of soul, modest of herself, she had only one source of pride, purity. She demanded it of herself and of others. She could not forgive Christophe for having so lowered himself, and she would never forgive him. Christophe tried to talk to her, though not to explain himself. What could he say to her? What could he say to a little puritanical and naive girl? He would have liked to assure her that he was her friend, that he wished for her esteem, and had still the right to it. He wished to prevent her absurdly estranging herself from him. But Rosa avoided him in stern silence. He felt that she despised him. He was both sorry and angry. He felt that he did not deserve such contempt, and yet in the end he was bowled over by it, and thought himself guilty. Of all the reproaches cast against him, the most bitter came from himself when he thought of Sabine. He tormented himself. Oh, God, how is it possible? What sort of creature am I? But he could not resist the stream that bore him on. He thought that life is criminal, and he closed his eyes so as to live without seeing it. He had so great a need to live and be happy and love and believe. No, there was nothing despicable in his love. He knew that it was impossible to be very wise or intelligent or even very happy in his love for Ada. But what was there in it that could be called vile? Suppose, he forced the idea on himself, that Ada were not a woman of any great moral worth. How was the love that he had for her the less pure for that? Love is in the lover, not in the beloved. Everything is worthy of the lover. Everything is worthy of love. To the pure all is pure. All is pure in the strong and the healthy of mind. Love, which adorns certain birds with their loveliest colors, 
calls forth from the souls that are true all that is most noble in them. The desire to show to the beloved only what is worthy makes the lover take pleasure only in those thoughts and actions which are in harmony with the beautiful image fashioned by love. And the waters of youth in which the soul is bathed, the blessed radiance of strength and joy, are beautiful and health-giving, making the heart great. That his friends misunderstood him filled him with bitterness, but the worst trial of all was that his mother was beginning to be unhappy about it. The good creature was far from sharing the narrow views of the Fogels. She had seen real sorrows too near ever to try to invent others. Humble, broken by life, having received little joy from it, and having asked even less, resigned to everything that happened, without even trying to understand it, she was careful not to judge or censure others. She thought she had no right. She thought herself too stupid to pretend that they were wrong when they did not think as she did. It would have seemed ridiculous to try to impose on others the inflexible rules of her morality and belief. Besides that, her morality and her belief were purely instinctive. Pious and pure in herself, she closed her eyes to the conduct of others with the indulgence of her class for certain faults and certain weaknesses. That had been one of the complaints that her father-in-law, Jean-Michel, had lodged against her. She did not sufficiently distinguish between those who were honorable and those who were not. She was not afraid of stopping in the street or the marketplace to shake hands and talk with young women, notorious in the neighborhood, whom a respectable woman ought to pretend to ignore. She left it to God to distinguish between good and evil, to punish or to forgive. From others she asked only a little of that affectionate sympathy which is so necessary to soften the ways of life. If people were only kind, she asked no more. But since she had lived with the Vogels, a change had come about in her. The disparaging temper of the family had found her an easier prey because she was crushed and had no strength to resist. Amalia had taken her in hand, and from morning to night, when they were working together alone, and Amalia did all the talking, Louisa, broken and passive, unconsciously assumed the habit of judging and criticizing everything. Frau Vogel did not fail to tell her what she thought of Christophe's conduct. Louisa's calmness irritated her. She thought it indecent of Louisa to be so little concerned about what put him beyond the pale. She was not satisfied until she had upset her altogether. Christophe saw it. Louisa dared not reproach him, but every day she made little timid remarks, uneasy, insistent, and when he lost patience and replied sharply, she said no more. But still he could see the trouble in her eyes, and when he came home sometimes he could see that she had been weeping. He knew his mother too well not to be absolutely certain that her uneasiness did not come from herself, and he knew well whence it came. He determined to make an end of it. One evening, when Louisa was unable to hold back her tears, and had got up from the table in the middle of supper without Christophe being able to discover what was the matter, he rushed downstairs four steps at a time, and knocked at the Fogel's door. He was boiling with rage. He was not only angry about Frau Fogel's treatment of his mother, he had to avenge himself for her having turned Rosa against him. 
for her bickering against Sabine, for all that he had had to put up with at her hands for months. For months he had borne his pent-up feelings against her and now made haste to let them loose. He burst in on Frau Vogel, and in a voice that he tried to keep calm, though it was trembling with fury, he asked her what she had told his mother to bring her to such a state. Amalia took it very badly. She replied that she would say what she pleased, and was responsible to no one for her actions, to him least of all, and seizing the opportunity to deliver the speech which she had prepared, she added that if Louisa was unhappy he had to go no further for the cause of it than his own conduct, which was a shame to himself and a scandal to everybody else. Christophe was only waiting for her onslaught to strike out. He shouted angrily that his conduct was his own affair, that he did not care a rap whether it pleased Frau Vogel or not that if she wished to complain of it, she must do so to him, and that she could say to him whatever she liked. That rested with her, but he forbade her, did she hear? Forbade her to say anything to his mother. It was cowardly and mean so to attack a poor, sick old woman. Frau Vogel cried loudly. Never had anyone dared to speak to her in such a manner. She said that she was not to be lectured by a rapscallion, and in her own house, too, and she treated him with abuse. The others came running up on the noise of the quarrel, except Vogel, who fled from anything that might upset his health. Old Euler was called to witness by the indignant Amalia, and sternly bade Christophe in future to refrain from speaking to or visiting them. He said that they did not need him to tell them what they ought to do, that they did their duty and would always do it. Christophe declared that he would go and would never again set foot in their house. However, he did not go until he had relieved his feelings by telling them what he had still to say about their famous duty, which had become to him a personal enemy. He said that their duty was the sort of thing to make him love vice. It was people like them who discouraged good by insisting on making it unpleasant. It was their fault that so many find delight by contrast among those who are dishonest, but amiable and laughter-loving. It was a profanation of the name of duty to apply it to everything, to the most stupid tasks, to trivial things, with a stiff and arrogant severity which ends by darkening and poisoning life. Duty, he said, was exceptional. It should be kept for moments of real sacrifice and not used to lend the lover of its name to ill-humor and the desire to be disagreeable to others. There was no reason, because they were stupid enough or ungracious enough to be sad, to want everybody else to be so too and to impose on everybody their decrepit way of living. The first of all virtues is joy. Virtue must be happy, free, and unconstrained. He who does good must give pleasure to himself. But this perpetual upstart duty, this pedagogic tyranny, this peevishness, this feudal discussion, this acrid, puerile quibbling, this ungraciousness, this charmless life, without politeness, without silence, this mean-spirited pessimism, which lets slip nothing that can make existence poorer than it is, this vainglorious unintelligence which finds it easier to despise others than to understand them, 
all this middle-class morality without greatness, without largeness, without happiness, without beauty. All these things are odious and hurtful. They make vice appear more human than virtue. So thought Christophe, and in his desire to hurt those who had wounded him, he did not see that he was being as unjust as those of whom he spoke. No doubt these unfortunate people were almost as he saw them, but it was not their fault. It was the fault of their ungracious life, which had made their faces, their doings, and their thoughts ungracious. They had suffered the deformation of misery, not that great misery which swoops down and slays or forges anew, but the misery of ever-recurring ill-fortune, that small misery which trickles down drop by drop from the first day to the last. Sad indeed, for beneath these rough exteriors what treasures in reserve are there, of uprightness, of kindness, of silent heroism, the whole strength of a people, all the sap of the future. Christophe was not wrong in thinking duty exceptional, but love is so no less. Everything is exceptional. Everything that is of worth has no worse enemy, not the evil, the vices are of worth, but the habitual. The mortal enemy of the soul is the daily wear and tear. Ada was beginning to weary of it. She was not clever enough to find new food for her love in an abundant nature like that of Christophe. Her senses and her vanity had extracted from it all the pleasure they could find in it. There was left her only the pleasure of destroying it. She had that secret instinct common to so many women, even good women, to so many men, even clever men, who are not creative either of art or of children or of pure action, no matter what of life, and yet have too much life in apathy and resignation to bear with their uselessness. They desire others to be as useless as themselves and do their best to make them so. Sometimes they do so in spite of themselves, and when they become aware of their criminal desire they hotly thrust it back, but often they hug it to themselves, and they set themselves according to their strength, some modestly in their own intimate circle, others largely with vast audiences, to destroy everything that has life, everything that loves life, everything that deserves life, the critic who takes upon himself to diminish the stature of great men and great thoughts, and the girl who amuses herself with dragging down her lovers, are both mischievous beasts of the same kind, but the second is the pleasanter of the two. Ada then would have liked to corrupt Christophe a little, to humiliate him. In truth, she was not strong enough. More intelligence was needed, even in corruption. She felt that, and it was not the least of her rankling feelings against Christophe that her love could do him no harm. She did not admit the desire that was in her to do him harm. Perhaps she would have done him none if she had been able, but it annoyed her that she could not do it. It is to fail in love for a woman not to leave her the illusion of her power for good or evil over her lover. To do that must inevitably be to impel her irresistibly to the test of it, Christophe paid no attention to it when Ada asked him jokingly, "'Would you leave your music for me?' Although she had no wish for him to do so, he replied frankly, "'No, my dear, neither you nor anybody else can do anything against that. I shall always make music.' "'And you say you love?' 
cried she, put out. She hated his music, the more so because she did not understand it, and it was impossible for her to find a means of coming to grips with this invisible enemy, and so to wound Christophe in his passion. If she tried to talk of it contemptuously or scornfully to judge Christophe's compositions, he would shout with laughter, and in spite of her exasperation, Ada would relapse into silence, for she saw that she was being ridiculous. But if there was nothing to be done in that direction, she had discovered another weak spot in Christophe, one more easy of access, his moral faith. In spite of his squabble with the Fogels, and in spite of the intoxication of his adolescence, Christophe had preserved an instinctive modesty, a need of purity, of which he was entirely unconscious. At first it struck Ada, attracted and charmed her, then made her impatient and irritable, and finally, being the woman she was, she detested it. She did not make a frontal attack. She would ask insidiously, "'Do you love me?' "'Of course.' "'How much do you love me?' "'As much as it is possible to love.' "'That is not much. After all, what would you do for me?' "'Whatever you like.' "'Will you do something dishonest?' "'That would be a queer way of loving.' That is not what I asked. Would you? It is not necessary. But if I wished it? You would be wrong. Perhaps. Would you do it? He tried to kiss her, but she thrust him away. Would you do it? Yes or no? No, my dear. She turned her back on him and was furious. You do not love me. You do not know what love is. That is quite possible he said good-humouredly. He knew that, like anybody else, he was capable, in a moment of passion, of committing some folly, perhaps something dishonest, and, who knows, even more. But he would have thought shame of himself if he had boasted of it in cold blood, and certainly it would be dangerous to confess it to Ada. Some instinct warned him that the beloved foe was lying in ambush, and taking stock of his smallest remark, he would not give her any weapon against him. She would return to the charge again and ask him, "'Do you love me because you love me, or because I love you?' "'Because I love you.' "'Then if I did not love you, you would still love me?' "'Yes.' "'And if I loved someone else, you would still love me?' "'Ah, I don't know about that. I don't think so. In any case, you would be the last person to whom I should say so.' "'How would it be changed?' Many things would be changed. Myself, perhaps. You, certainly. And if I changed, what would it matter? All the difference in the world. I love you as you are. If you become another creature, I can't promise to love you. You do not love. You do not love. What is the use of all this quibbling? You love or you do not love. If you love me, you ought to love me just as I am. Whatever I do. Always. That would be to love you like an animal. I want to be loved like that. Then you have made a mistake, said he jokingly. I am not the sort of man you want. I would like to be, but I cannot, and I will not. You are very proud of your intelligence. You love your intelligence more than you do me. But I love you, you wretch, more than you love yourself. The more beautiful and the more good you are, the more I love you. "'You are a schoolmaster,' she said with asperity. 
What would you? I love what is beautiful. Anything ugly disgusts me. Even in me? Especially in you. She drummed angrily with her foot. I will not be judged. Then complain of what I judge you to be, and of what I love in you, said he tenderly to appease her. She let him take her in his arms, and deigned to smile, and let him kiss her. But in a moment, when he thought she had forgotten, she asked uneasily, "'What do you think ugly in me?' He would not tell her. He replied cowardly, "'I don't think anything ugly in you.' She thought for a moment, smiled, and said, "'Just a moment, Christley. You say that you do not like lying?' "'I despise it.' "'You are right,' she said. "'I despise it, too. I am of a good conscience. I never lie.' He stared at her. She was sincere. Her unconsciousness disarmed him. "'Then,' she went on, putting her arms about his neck, "'why would you be cross with me if I loved someone else and told you so?' "'Don't tease me.' "'I'm not teasing. I am not saying that I do love someone else. I am saying that I do not. But if I did love someone later on—' "'Well, don't let us think of it.' "'But I want to think of it. You would not be angry with me. You could not be angry with me. I should not be angry with you. I should leave you. That is all. Leave me? Why? If I still loved you? While you loved someone else? Of course. It happens sometimes. Well, it will not happen with us. Why? Because as soon as you love someone else, I shall love you no longer, my dear. Never, never again. "'But just now you said perhaps—' "'Ah, you see, you do not love me.' "'Well, then, all the better for you.' "'Because?' "'Because if I loved you when you loved someone else, "'it might turn out badly for you, me, and him.' "'Then—now you are mad. "'Then I am condemned to stay with you all my life?' "'Be calm. You are free. "'You shall leave me when you like. "'Only it will not be au revoir.' It will be good-bye. But if I still love you? When people love, they sacrifice themselves to each other. Well, then, sacrifice yourself. He could not help laughing at her egoism, and she laughed, too. The sacrifice of one only, he said, means the love of one only. Not at all. It means the love of both. I shall not love you much longer if you do not sacrifice yourself for me. And think, Christley, how much you will love me when you have sacrificed yourself, and how happy you will be. They laughed and were glad to have a change from the seriousness of the disagreement. He laughed and looked at her. At heart, as she said, she had no desire to leave Christophe at present. If he irritated her and often bored her, she knew the worth of such devotion as his, and she loved no one else. She talked so for fun partly because she knew he disliked it, partly because she took pleasure in playing with equivocal and unclean thoughts, like a child which delights to mess about with dirty water. He knew this. He did not mind. But he was tired of these unwholesome discussions, of the silent struggle against this uncertain and uneasy creature whom he loved, who perhaps loved him. He was tired from the effort that he had to make to deceive himself about her, sometimes tired almost to tears. He would think, Why, why is she like this? Why are people like this? 
How second-rate life is. At the same time, he would smile as he saw her pretty face above him, her blue eyes, her flower-like complexion, her laughing, chattering lips, foolish a little, half open to reveal the brilliance of her tongue and her white teeth. Their lips would almost touch, and he would look at her as from a distance, a great distance, as from another world. He would see her going farther and farther from him, vanishing in a mist, and then he would lose sight of her. He could hear her no more. He would fall into a sort of smiling oblivion, in which he thought of his music, his dreams, a thousand things foreign to Ada. Ah, beautiful music, so sad, so mortally sad, and yet kind, loving. Ah, how good it is. It is that, it is that. Nothing else is true. She would shake his arm. A voice would cry, Eh, what's the matter with you? You are mad, quite mad. Why do you look at me like that? Why don't you answer? Once more he would see the eyes looking at him. Who was it? Ah, yes, he would sigh. She would watch him. She would try to discover what he was thinking of. She did not understand, but she felt that it was useless, that she could not keep hold of him, that there was always a door by which he could escape. She would conceal her irritation. "'Why are you crying?' she asked him once, as he returned from one of his strange journeys into another life. He drew his hands across his eyes. He felt that they were wet. "'I do not know,' he said. "'Why don't you answer? Three times you have said the same thing.' "'What do you want?' he asked gently. She went back to her absurd discussions. He waved his hand wearily. "'Yes,' she said. "'I've done. Only a word more.' And off she started again. Christophe shook himself angrily. "'Will you keep your dirtiness to yourself?' "'I was only joking.' "'Find cleaner subjects, then.' "'Tell me why, then. Tell me why you don't like it.' "'Why? You can't argue as to why a dump-heap smells. It does smell, and that is all. I hold my nose and go away.' He went away, furious, and he strode along, taking in great breaths of the cold air. But she would begin again, once, twice, ten times. She would bring forward every possible subject that could shock him and offend his conscience. He thought it was only a morbid jest of a neurasthenic girl, amusing herself by annoying him. He would shrug his shoulders or pretend not to hear her. He would not take her seriously. But sometimes he would long to throw her out of the window, for neurasthenia and the neurasthenics were very little to his taste. But ten minutes away from her were enough to make him forget everything that had annoyed him. He would return to Ada with a fresh store of hopes and new illusions. He loved her. Love is a perpetual act of faith. Whether God exists or no is a small matter. We believe because we believe. We love because we love. There is no need of reasons. End of section 34